Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Caitlin Yeager, Director of Heritage Programs for Missouri Humanities. Our mission is to enrich lives and strengthen communities by connecting Missourians with the people, places, and ideas that shape our society. Thank you so much for joining us today for Chapter 5 of our Explore Missouri's German Heritage, an eight-part program series that delves into each chapter of the book of the same title by W. Arthur Merhoff. The series will continue every second Thursday of the month at 10 a.m. through April. The book is available for purchase as well. I'll be posting the link to buy the book in the chat box on Zoom, as well as in the comments on the Facebook Live video for those of you that are joining us on Facebook. The books are $25 each and all proceeds from the book sales will help us continue to bring free public programs such as these to Missourians. Whether you are joining us through Zoom or watching on Facebook Live, we invite you to be part of the conversation. If you're on Facebook, feel free to comment to let us know you're watching or to ask questions for us to consider. If you're on Zoom, you can submit questions throughout the program using the chat feature or the Q&A feature, and we'll try to answer as many as possible. If you enjoy our program today and are interested in seeing more from Missouri Humanities, please check us out on Facebook or on our website for the most up-to-date information about our events. We also have a membership program where benefits include free books, discounted tickets to special programs, and access to members-only events. To become a member, visit www.mohumanities.org and click Memberships under the Donate tab. After our program today, I'll send everyone an email with a link to our program survey. I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to let us know what you thought of the presentation. These surveys are really important as we continue to bring public programming to Missourians and work toward a more thoughtful, informed, and civil society. Our discussion today will feature a conversation, of course, between myself and Dr. Arthur Merhoff, the author of the publication. But our special edition today is Cindy Brown, the former site administrator for Deutschheim State Historic Site in Herman, Missouri. The title of the chapter is Good Work and covers topics related to architecture, agriculture, beer brewing, viticulture, and more. If you missed any of our last discussions, here is a brief overview of what we've covered so far. So chapter one served as a bit of just an introduction to Missouri's German heritage and discussed many of the efforts that have been made in recent years to preserve and commemorate that heritage. During our discussion on chapter two, we were joined by Dr. Petra DeWitt and our discussion centered around cultural identity and conflict for German Americans in Missouri. For chapter three, our discussion focused on German immigration into Missouri, specifically immigrant groups and German immigrant communities that were established. Kathy Schopenhorst, a local historian from Warren County, was our special guest. Last month, our discussion of Chapter 4 centered around the theme of shaping the land and the sense of place within Missouri's German Heritage Corridor and beyond. If you'd like to go back and view past discussions, they're all available under the Videos tab on our Facebook page, which is Missouri Humanities Council, as well as our YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel is also just called Missouri Humanities Council. So if you're on YouTube, you can search our name and you can see all the different channels and videos that are available there. So now that we are all caught up, I'd like to turn this over to Arthur to introduce himself, uh, set the stage for the discussion and introduce Cindy for us. Uh, so Arthur, why don't you take it away? Guten Morgen, Frau Jäger. And <laughs> good morning, everybody. It's good to have you back. I hope your holidays have been uh, enjoyable and uh, restful and uh, Thank you, especially for coming back and joining us again. And uh, if this is your first time, then, then welcome. 
Um, I will admit to being the author of this publication, but I've said this time and time again that um, this is a really a collaborative effort. And uh, I think as you hopefully, if you looked at this chapter, you've seen the incredible graphics. There's an enormous amount of editing that goes into this publication um, without the help of Cindy Brown, for example, in this chapter, I'd still be writing it. So it's, it's important to keep in mind that, uh, um, you know, this, I'm part of a collaborative effort and the uh, German Heritage Corridor Initiative is a big part of that particular effort. So uh, with that being said, um, I would like to give you some background, um, if, especially if this is your first time, I have a doctorate in American culture studies from St. Louis University with an emphasis in material culture studies. So if you've read this publication, you're wondering, is this really history? I would say no. It's really, um, if you will, anthropology, eth ethnography, um, material culture studies. It was the only way that in about 150 pages, <laughs> we could kind of um, provide some thematic overview of uh, Missouri's German cultural heritage, which is uh, lengthy and covers an enormous um, part of the state. And um, I used to write from Missouri Life magazine, had a column called Missouri Journal, which um, looked at Missouri's special places. So um, they were having some challenges trying to get a a bead on Missouri's cultural heritage. So trying to focus on special places and objects was a way to try and get some focus on this vast heritage. And finally, I worked as the academic coordinator for the Museum of Arts and Archeology span at the University of Missouri. So museum education is a big part of what I do. And in a sense, we're looking at the German Heritage Corridor as this vast museum. And we've looked at the history, the origins, um, and then we've started to look at, if you will, the cultural ecology or the relationship between various pieces of culture. Last time we looked at the land itself, the natural environments, and how that both shaped and was shaped by Missouri's Germans. And today we're going to take a look at Das Arbeit, the work, what people do for a living, technologies and how influential, important that is for people. Anybody who's paying attention knows that changes in our technology and how we make our livings ripple through the entire society and culture. And that same idea applies to looking at Missouri's German cultural heritage, both in the past as well as today. So that kind of tries to um, bring you up to date. So we're looking today at, um, in chapter five at Das Arbeit, how um, Missouri's Germans made their living in some key ways. Obviously there's a, a tremendous um, range of activities, but we're focusing on three key aspects, starting with farming, if you will, um, Beer, what do, you, what do you do with all the grain that you make? Well, at least if you're German, you make beer. And then finally, uh, winemaking, which is 
a very specialized, but I think a distinctive part of Missouri's German cultural heritage. So why do we have our guest speaker here today? Well, as I mentioned, uh, I owe a great debt to Cindy Brown for all of her assistance, not just in this chapter, but throughout this publication, but also because um, in particular, I think she offers some, some real insights into especially um, the German cultural heritage in terms of farming and, ter and this incredible Pelster house barn, which is one of our key artifacts here. Um, she has a great deal of knowledge and experience with. So I mentioned she's the former site administrator for Deutschheim State Historic Site, and also it's an outstanding preservation architect. I'm not gonna brag her up um, <laughs> because we do have to finish this presentation, but I would like to introduce Cindy and ask her just to talk a little bit about your background and interests in um, preservation and Missouri's German cultural heritage. Certainly. Thank you, Arthur. You're very kind in your comments. It was a great collaborative effort, uh, Caitlin being a part of it, and many of our colleagues that you referenced throughout the publication uh, that made possible what we're now discussing and, and brought it to fruition. So I was just pleased to be a part of it. Uh, my background, I'm a Midwesterner. Um, I loved working at Deutschheim because it was a perfect blend of my key interests, which have always been history. Um, and as I told you the other day, I wasn't quite sure what I was, I loved history, but how do you make a, a, a career out of, out of history studies? Um, and I also loved architecture. So I ended up getting my uh, professional uh, license in architecture. And I have a focus in historic preservation, which is a natural blending of those two. Uh, did start out in a corporate career that was throughout the Midwest, uh, retired to the little town of Herman, which is beautiful. And uh, both because of its natural environment, which I found striking and also uh, its history, which I knew just a little bit about at the time and also uh, the built environment there, the historic preservation aspects of it that had been retained, uh, partly due to the whole thing with uh, prohibition in the wine industry because it, it brought to a close the economic vitality uh, to some degree of the community uh, long before the depression and also the natural frugalness and care that the German population took towards the preservation for the most part of its uh, if it's of its built environment was extremely appealing to me. So um, for a period of time, I was working on uh, restoration projects there in Herman, national register projects, uh, utilizing the federal and state tax credits uh, with those that were wanting to preserve uh, the community, which was an amazing opportunity. And I had my own practice and then had the opportunity to go to work at Deutschheim, which is just a jewel. I mean, it has those, historic buildings that have been preserved uh, thanks to the Russian Palette Club in Herman, an early group of preservationists um, who recognized their importance. So um, it's been a part of the state park system uh, since the 1978. And uh, I remember going there when I was just a visitor to Herman. So it was truly um, an honor to then be the site director. So we did a lot of projects utilizing my background to say, let's preserve the buildings, but then it was an opportunity for me to use that interest in history 
And my own background on my mother's side is German, immigration to the Midwest in the 1870s. So I know a whole lot more about it now than I did when I started. So it's been um, uh, 10 years ago that I started there and I retired uh, last year. And so this is an opportunity to still be engaged. So I thank you for including me today. Thank you, Cindy and Arthur. Um, so let's let's launch right into this discussion. Um, I think this is a, a really cool chapter because we're really starting to get into kind of the, the details of what everyday life was like for Germans in Missouri. Um, and I think one of the most interesting examples that Arthur brings up and spends quite a bit of time talking about in this publication, um, an example of that kind of daily life is the Pelster House Farm. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, at least in my experience with talking about and doing programs about German heritage, I've, I've come to realize that not a lot of people know what a house barn is, um, nor do they understand how rare it is to find this kind of example of this architecture, not just in Missouri, but in the country. Um, yes. So if, if I remember correctly, and Cindy or Arthur, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Pelster House Barn here in Missouri, and it's kind of New Haven Hermit, is it, is it technically New, ha New Haven? Yeah, it, it, it's in Franklin County, yeah, New Haven mm -hmm. area. Um, it's one of six of these kinds of structures left in the entire country. Um, and, and so Arthur, talk to us a little bit about, and Cindy as well, about the, the background of this kind of structure in the Pelster House Barn itself. Why is it so significant? And how did this kind of lifestyle that the Pelster House Barn represented grow and evolve over time throughout the history of that area? I would say um, that the Pelster House Barn is an outstanding, as you pointed out, um, and unique artifact of Missouri's German cultural heritage that also poses crucial questions about the meanings of that cultural heritage for us today as well. <clears throat> I think you said there were six. If, um, I also wanted to cite uh, the National Register nomination for the Pelster House Barn. It's absolutely outstanding. And uh, Claire Blackwell from the State Historic Preservation Office has also wrote a number of articles about it. And <clears throat> it's what American Culture Studies uh, scholar Gene Wise called a dense fact. It was, it's an object, one, that is still visible, although not visitable. And it's also, uh, I think so unique and it's so wrapped up in the history of Missouri's farming heritage, both in the old country as well as how the new world sh shaped this, this incredible artifact that uh, it's just a really good vantage point to look at um, how most Missouri Germans outside of the St. Louis and you know, other metropolitan areas lived. And the difference, Lauren Torno, Torno, who is a noted preservation architect and participated actively in our symposium, the German Heritage Corridor Initiative Symposium, emphasized that very strongly that you need to think about how little change, how isolated these communities were up until really the 1930s when the uh, state highway system, the US highways expanded, but are you still there? Whoa. 
Am I? Oh, okay. You did that. I didn't. Yes. Do I wanted to, I realized we're talking about this kind of unique structure and I wanted to make sure we could maybe see a photo of it. I, well, let me get my heart rate back down a bit. But, uh, <clears throat> it's an old world tradition. The uh, research indicates that it's probably of Southern um, German or maybe even Swiss origin, although the, uh, the Pelster family was actually from Northern Germany. But in a wonderful article by Howard Marshall that I hope people will take a look at, he talked about how this was this beautiful blending, if you will, how um, the Pelsters took these old world traditions and made them work in their new setting. I mean, basically in the old world where land was expensive and uh, um, you know, your livestock were your livelihood, then you better keep, <laughs> everything has to be tightly tied together. And the house barn grew out of that tradition and basically incorporates um, the livestock, threshing, uh, granaries, and family dwellings into the same building. And what's unique about this one to me is that it's built into the side of the, the hill. And anybody who's looked at earth sheltered dwellings knows that's, that's a really smart thing to do. So, um, and it also uses um, a style called the Fachwerk, which Cindy will tell you more about. And I'm sure that uh, it's, it's interesting. It's just a, a stylistic contribution he could have built just about anything, but he chose to build in this particular vernacular style. And it also uses uh, weatherboarding, which is not typical of the German style because timber was, was expensive and protected. So there are a lot of things going on with the Pelster house barn that um, make it a unique way of or window into the uh, Missouri's German um, heritage in terms of farming. But um, Sidney Brown knows a lot more about the architecture and as well as how this thing um, is still, why this thing is still standing, which I think are important for us to, to hear about as well. Sidney? Well, one of the things you mentioned, Arthur, is the fact that people continue to uh, live rurally and continue their traditions, you know, well into uh, the 1900s. And that's true of this building as well, because it was occupied uh, until the mid 20th century uh, that also preserved it. But the thing that was most striking to me when I first visibly, with, I mean, first there to actually see the, the building was, it is completely authentic. I mean, it has not been restored. It was not updated. It was kept the way that it always was. And as a result, it has um, a certain resonance and a beauty to it that um, it's so substantially built in these uh, massive timber beams that are mortise and tenon together and uh, Roman numerals to indicate where those uh, bents are created. It would have been assembled and then put up in place. And it is uh, then infilled with nogging, which is the tradition that they had in, in Germany that you alluded to where Timber was very precious. I mean, you didn't have access to timber. 
people lived in buildings that were hundreds of years old because you did not have the ability to go fell trees. It was uh, very, very much controlled by the nobleman or the town or whomever owned the timber. You didn't have access to it versus in the United States. You know, we looked at it as a resource, uh, perhaps regrettably so, where it was, um, you know, felled and like in the way of, of creating areas that you could then create farmland from. And so, uh, the tradition of doing the fock work or the uh, very detailed craftsmanship that assembles a rigid frame out of massive timbers to support the structure that was from the old country didn't necessarily have to be built here because you could simply make a, a stacked log structure out of the abundant timber that we had. Um, a difference also, and you allude to when we talk about the self-sufficiency, is the fact that in, in Germany they would have lived in the village and so you had everybody that lived within a, a village. And when we had some, some German visitors here, part of the uh, Summer Traveling Republic that did the Utopia film, and they were taken to see the Pelster House Barn, they were not nearly as impressed as what we are with it, but that's because it's singular for us, but it is very common in Germany. So if you go through uh, villages, when I was on a tour there and you're driving about and they're everywhere because in the village you would have had a your house and your barn connected because yes, you're protecting your livestock, you're protecting your grain stores. It makes a lot of sense. And you had maybe a courtyard and then you went out to your, your agriculture area that you actually did your farming. Um, you know, the, the housewife is there at home, to, you know, tending the fires and probably doing spinning and checking the livestock and doing all those cares that um, were required. But you would have had um, a different type of experience, more of a village experience in Germany. And then here in the United States where we have abundant land, instead you're getting 40 acres that are out in the country and you're very much on your own. You're very isolated. And so in this case, Mr. Pelser is taking uh, a tradition from the old country and constructing it here using the methodology that he knew from the old country to build with these big timbers and he has his livestock in the lower area, which is what you can see in the, in the photograph, um, the stone foundation that is banked into the hillside. Uh, it's got a wonderful gable entry there that um, is at grade on the, the front side, which enters into the threshing floor uh, where you also would have pushed in the wagon and you would have then you know, pulled the hay out and that would have been put in the loft at the very top. Uh, which stores it, of course, as needed in all barns, but it also, when it's over the house, adds insulation because you've got all of that uh, hay that's stored up ahead. So the house is on the left, the threshing floor in the middle, and then the uh, granary stores, as you referred to, Arthur, on the, the right. Um, it is just an extraordinary structure and thankfully was preserved and was donated to the state of Missouri. Um, it is a resource that has been carefully protected, is on the National Register, uh, has been the subject of many articles and is um, just a, a phenomenal uh, treasure. Um, I, I am just uh, always impressed every time I have been there to visit. One of our um, viewers, Norman, I believe, asked about the, uh, the use of the wood. I understand the support timbers are oak, which <laughs> um, is natural, I guess. Uh, weatherboarding and uh, some of the, like the columns on the, uh, the front. Uh -huh. yeah. Do you they, know? Would, they would have used the materials that are locally available, which is, you know, one of the beauties, I think, of 
of uh, some of this rural architecture is the fact that you're using materials from the site. So you're, you're querying stone, you're burning lime for the mortar, you're felling trees and using those um, and your, your skills to um, create a, a structure that's very compatible with the landscape. Sounds like Frank Lloyd, right? Yes. And Norman actually has a follow-up to that, which is, um, and, and this is true, there's a number of limestone rock houses in the vicinity uh, of the Pelster House Barn. Why isn't the structure more rock than it is? Well, it's a good question. Building a rock house is a lot of work, and this is a huge building. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's actually, what you use is the, the, the rubble stone, it, 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 that's the way it's done in this particular structure. In between each of those vertical timbers, it's infilled with the, the rubble stone, the smaller stones. And that becomes, um, it's, it, it may be plastered on the inside, it may be covered with the weatherboard or it may be left exposed, but that becomes a, a barrier, if you will, for wind infiltration. It's really not much insulating value because it's more mass than it is insulating, but um, they used all the materials they had. So the larger stones, which might've been dressed, of course, here to, to comprise the foundation, and then the rest of it was timber framed. Um, William Pelster helped his father uh, build a similar house earlier than this that was much smaller, but in the same tradition. So they're utilizing the same techniques that they had uh, in Germany. And one of the houses at um, Deutschheim, the Straley house, is also a similar construction, but it's done uh, in Hermann, where you're in an urban or small city environment, done with brick nogging because the brick is more readily available. I know we could we can talk about Pelster Housework for the entirety of this. this we could. So it's such an interesting uh, piece of architecture and piece of history, especially you know with all the ideas that are thrown around about what to actually do with the structure. So just one last note that I'll make is that you know we're constantly exploring ways to make this a little bit better interpreted. Um, you know to try and you know, maybe someday, maybe not so much open to the public, but allow tours so people can because it's it's surrounded by private property um so it's not easily accessible um so so there are you know discussions uh so hopefully you know one day some of those will come to fruition so stay tuned um we have hosted missouri barn alliance had a meeting there i mean there there are ways that uh potentially it could be utilized in that fashion but i share mm -hmm. your your hopes because it is such a a wonderful facility and it, it is huge. It would be great to have it more available for people to see. Absolutely. Um, and moving on to something that's still somewhat related to the topic, but um, I want to delve a little bit deeper into this. And Cindy, you touched on this a bit, um, the, the place of rural German heritage. And some of the things that you had said um, that were different here in Missouri for Germans rather than in, in Germany was the idea of, it was much more rural. Mm -hmm a much more rural lifestyle that many of them, and not to say that Germans didn't live in, in town, many did, but agriculture and farming was such a, a big part of that culture that many lived in rural areas where, like you said, it was self-sufficiency, you were more isolated. Um, so if we want to talk just a little bit more, um, like I said, we touched on it a little bit, um, that rural German heritage identity and how it, where it has a place in the study and commemoration of our German heritage and how that differs from other examples of German heritage in the state, this kind of rural versus everything else. You know, why is it so, such a different conversation? Hmm. Hmm, a, good, a good question. I mean, I think the, 
in terms of legacy that it offers is the fact that we have the, I mean, the Midwest and, and frankly, the Midwest is pretty much all settled by German immigrants. If you look at what the percentage of population, whether that's Wisconsin or Iowa or Missouri or, you know, wherever, um, is the, the, the reputation for a strong work ethic. Uh, the reputation for self-sufficiency, you know, I want to do things on my own. I want, you know, there is, you were forced to do that because you had left a community and there's, there's a contrast between living in a community and that of being rural and self-sufficient. I, I can empathize how difficult it must have been for particularly um, women of the household that would have been completely isolated and had been previously in a village where you had access to the local baker and seamstress and there were so many people uh, an overpopulation situation in Germany. So you had household help, you know, you had laborers that helped with the farm. Then you come to America and you're, you're getting land that has never been tilled before as opposed to land that's been tilled for hundreds of years. So Duden writes about the fertility of the land and the, and the opportunities that are here, which was all true, but it is a lot of work that much, many people weren't really truly prepared for. And as Lawrence had said, and as Arthur, you mentioned, you know, there weren't roads, you weren't taking your grains to market. It was for your self-sufficient needs of your livestock, your family. And that also gets into our next segments when we talk about beer production and wine production, because those were things that originally would have been done either on the farm, but maybe more likely in the community. And so it's part of the social culture as well. So those are things that I think um, you could see more of the expansion of the the social culture within a community like a bigger community, whether that's St. Charles or St. Louis, where you have tradesmen and you had those that were you know, accustomed to be in those trades in the old country that could then make those services available to the many Germans who lived in the city. And there were some that were idealistic. It was a romantic era that had been professors and lawyers that thought they could become farmers and they try to do that. And they retreat back to the city and say, oh no, that's not my skill set. And thankfully that did create, you know, German schools and, you know, German services that were essential. And to uh, the next parts of the chapter, when you get into things like the big breweries and the wineries and such that are community-based as opposed to farm-based. But we do have the population, a higher percentage initially, and through a long period of time would have been rural and would have been individual farms where you could own land as opposed to having right of tenancy that you didn't own, even though you inherited it, you didn't own the land where you were before. So it was freedom. That was what they were after, their freedom. Right height. <clears throat> it's also, I think, easier to maintain cultural traditions in rural areas than in urban areas. Urban areas by design are all about change and uh, new technologies and innovation and commerce. And in, you know, in smaller rural areas, um, I think it's easier to maintain some of those traditions to still speak the language in St. Louis, as we saw during the period up leading up to World War I, they, the city said, no, you can't teach German in the public schools anymore. In Herman or Westphalia, that, that wasn't um, you know, the same issue. There was less um, peer pressure, I guess, or social pressure. So I think the ability to maintain cultural continuity um, in rural areas is important. And that's why a place like the Pelzer Hausborn, you know, it's still there. If, it was, 
you know, on the edge of the metropolitan St. Louis area, I, I seriously doubt whether it would still be standing, certainly not standing as a, you know, as a empty house barn. And uh, so there's much more development pressure and if you will, cultural pressures in urban areas. And it's a theme that shows up very strongly in German culture. The, the famous uh, Ferdinand Tönnies Gemeinschaft versus Gesellschaft, the traditional community versus the modern urban community, you know, grows out of these cultural changes. You can see it in the films during the Weimar um, era, that tension, that the encroaching city, the threat of the city is very much a theme in German culture as well as in, you know, others as well. But uh, um, so I think if we're trying to study Missouri's German cultural heritage, um, the rural area offers perhaps a, a better laboratory. Uh, it's, it's easier to find artifacts that still kind of reflect those, that heritage than it is in, in our cities. Yeah, that's, I think that's a point we've brought up and maybe almost every presentation, you know, we, and I think we kind of joke during our practice that somehow every chapter always leads us back to what happened during World War One and World War II. Such a stark turning point for German cultural heritage um, around the world. And, and I think, you know, to, to hit on Arthur's point again about this, this idea of, of rural German heritage being a little bit easier to preserve because it lasted longer. And I think still to this day, um, you know, much of the German heritage that we explore in the more rural areas because they are much more obvious, much more present uh, kind of heritage than say in, in Saint, someplace, someplace bigger like St. Louis or St. Charles where it's there. And if you look hard, you can see it. There's so many other cultures and so many other pressures that happened over time to where it it either or it, it assimilated. Um, and I think, you know, like Arthur said, in more rural areas, if you were a little bit get a little bit more wiggle room to still be German. Um, and and I again, I think again, it all comes back to you know the World Wars. Um, and I and actually, we have a, a question about. Um, I don't know the answer to this. Maybe one of you do. <laughs> Can you discuss the ad field that the Germans? New Missouri farms left by Native Americans. Either of you have any info on that? I, I don't. Can you repeat that, Caitlin? I you... uh, can we discuss any ag fields that the Germans found on their New Missouri farms that were left by Native Americans? So I guess maybe land that was that had previously been tilled, previously been used, or or maybe by then it was too much well, time had passed. There, and there was a lot of of uh, like when when any of the soil was first cultivated where you would see artifacts that would be from Native American culture that were exhumed just in the process of plowing and tilling. And um, I know from some of the, I'm not an expert in this area, but from presentations that were done at the Gascony County Historical Society on Native American cultures and some, some of that was easily found through the 1970s and 80s which frankly, at that point in time, if you spoke to a farmer in the field, he might still been a German speaker. He probably spoke English too, but I've had that related uh, in terms of the, the continuation of those cultures into uh, the, the present era, if you will. 
but yes, there were artifacts found and mounds and, and things that would have been from the original occupants of the land uh, mm -hmm. long before it was settled by immigrant populations. Mm -hmm. And it's then, as Cindy points out, it's fair to say that really until recently, probably the 80s and beyond that, um, the importance of respecting Native American, like you know Ojibwe or Missouri um, cultures and their artifacts or sacred places, wasn't really on the agenda all that much. I mean, they tended to be more riverine, or uh, um, you know, they used the river valleys um, extensively. I I don't know. But I'm guessing you know that they would have settlements, but certainly not extensive agriculture, um, kind of a mix of some cultivated crops, but also, uh, um, you know, gathering and uh, um, hunting. Mm -hmm. But I could be wrong on that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, let's shift a little bit here. Um, so we talked a lot about agriculture, talked a lot about um, rural cultural heritage, but let's move into Beer brewing and viticulture, which Arthur notes in his other two essays in this book as two of the major industries Germans brought to Missouri. Um, so obviously, you know, Germans aren't the only ones who brew beer, but um, it seems that the culture of beer in Missouri is frequently attributed to the major brewing corporations that were started by Germans. I don't need to name them. You all know them. <laughs> um, but what, what did beer making do to this growing German culture in Missouri? For example, in the book, Arthur, you mentioned the neighborhoods uh, and demographics of the neighborhoods surrounding Anheuser-Busch and how because of the establishment of Anheuser-Busch, that affected the, the cultural heritage and the, and the architecture and the surrounding areas of that, of that brewery. Um, but, but we also talk a bit about the other Bush Brewery, John Bush Brewery, in uh, in Washington. So, so a big brewery in St. Louis and a small brewery in Washington, and how those uh, those affected German culture in our state. I guess I would say that beer is one of the economic bases of Missouri's German cultural heritage, and it includes things like music and beer halls and uh, Turnverein and family and community life, it's one of the things that I think distinguished uh, Missouri's German from Germans from the, the rest of uh, Missouri's culture, and not always to their advantage, as we saw uh, back in chapters two and three, especially chapter two, that uh, uh, there was the temperance movement, uh, the emphasis on a 100% pure American culture that was part of that uh, sort of Protestant um, temperance movement. And so beer was, <laughs> if you will, sort of the, uh, um, the fluid that kind of made this whole cultural machine or uh, it's really not a machine though, it's organic. I mean, it uh, uh, very much fit together and I think that's why it was so important. And uh, so how did it shape? Well, it was, it, had, it was necessary for the rest of this cultural experience to begin. And as we saw with prohibition, when you pull that out of the, uh, the culture, then the stack of cards starts coming down. <laughs> 
Well, I would, I guess I would add to that the, um, the fact that the, the Germans were so, um, German Americans were so concerned about the loss of something that was culturally significant, socially significant to them that uh, when the temperance movement started, you know, state by state, which was early in the 19th century, um, and it was by state was being discussed, should we have prohibition, uh, they would actually in Herman invite, uh, which was the epicenter of winemaking in Missouri at that point, invite state legislators to come to Herman to recognize that it was a temperate consumption of alcohol. Mm -hmm. Not it was not the saloon, you know, the, the the distilled liquors and the demon rum and the stuff that was part of the bigger prohibition um, um, puritanical uh, cultural um, effort. So it, it was resisted for a very long period of time. So they did play a role in terms of their um, political um, protesting and championing, if you will, to say, this is not who we are and that's not about what ours is. And it wasn't until, again, Caitlin back to World War I and probably some of the anti-German sentiment that in the Volstead Act, which implemented prohibition, it was applied more stringently to beer and wine than had been originally anticipated because they had lower alcohol content and they thought that might be less you know, it was going to go after demon rum and hard alcohol and not not about beer and wine, but then it ultimately did. And it had um, then significant consequences. Yeah, my, my own experience growing up is that beer was just a part of everyday life. It was very, it was very much a social lubricant, but I guess because it was a sort of a family thing or a community thing, uh, you really didn't have people sitting in a bar, pounding down really hard liquor by themselves. That's, that's not the image I have. And I'm, I certainly don't want to dismiss problems of alcoholism, but uh, it was, I think it was very much a part of the social ethos, the social way of doing things for uh, Missouri Germans that, uh, again, if, <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, they, their experience was like, Cindy talked about the demon rum, um, but Missouri's Germans came from a very different cultural background. And, you know, the beer hall, for example, in uh, Herman, you know, what, what was that like back in the day? And uh, they're well, very Richard, much- You know, there's the, the photograph in the book, you know, has the, in your book, has the whole next, the beer garden that was next to it. I mean, and St. Louis had prolific numbers of beer gardens that were throughout South St. Louis. So it was an, an outdoor, like it is in Germany, you know, and you had the, the structure, but you had an outdoor area. Um, I think uh, initially there may have been those that were Protestant and those that were Catholic and they didn't necessarily mix, but they, they had their beer gardens that were uh, very much uh, available. Uh, when prohibition was first, um, you know, implemented and those were closed down, I mean, there was trains that used to take that you know visitors out like to the Herman area I don't know whether they didn't maybe enforce the laws strictly but <laughs> I, I know that there were wine fests you know began there in 1848 you know there was the there that came by the steamboat but uh, then later I mean they always had festivals there and they are known for their festivals today but yeah the uh, the beer garden would have been a, a social environment that was just normal part of life and uh, of of and very local too, like there's local traditions now you mentioned and the microbreweries, et cetera, craft breweries 
but uh, every every community, every village would have had their local brewery because you didn't transport it. I mean, it was produced right there. And so, again, te technology would limit that because you had to have ice yes. available and those caves helped to provide that. It really wasn't until later in the 19th century that with refrigeration and refrigerated rail cars and you know, Anheuser-Busch is, is certainly a magnificent achievement, but it was more, an, I don't want to say an anomaly, but it wasn't the norm. Most of the German beer brewing tradition was local and really sort of integrated into community life. Less, It was less part of a growing consumer society than, uh, you know, the, the big breweries turned out to be. Exactly. Well, a few comments that are related to um, what we've just been talking about. Uh, Norman makes a comment that is, is completely, you know, something to think about here is comment about beer and wine. There was not abundant, high quality drinking water available. So sure. think, of, think about drinking Missouri River water. And, and that's interesting because, you know, something that I've, I've learned uh, kind of over the course of my studies is that, I mean, kind of throughout time, drinking things like ale, drinking things like wine, um, whiskey, all that was much more prevalent than people drinking water because that was available more readily than clean drinking water. Um, You're exactly right. Hard cider. Yeah, hard cider. Yes, so, it's the, the, it is a way of preserving one agricultural product that otherwise would spoil, but it's also a way to get the process of preparing it does create a safe drinking mm -hmm. product. If you were in St. Louis, as a, for instance, and you had no public sanitation, and so that is one of the big re reasons you had cholera epidemics mm -hmm. and, and other, you know, Typhus, yeah. it's because the, the contamination of drinking water. So yes, it is a different um, viewpoint when you don't have the availability of, of safe drinking water. And that's true whether it's on the farm or whether it's in a, <laughs> but it's even more true in a city where the density causes mm -hmm. the, the proximity of your um, outhouses, if you will, because you didn't have sanitation and you also had wells or you were going to uh, um, Chateau's Pond or something and drawing your water or the river. Yes, exactly. There's, there's an old German saying that Stadtluft macht frei, city air makes one free, but the water was a whole different story. And <laughs> Norman's in good company with Hildegard von Bingen, no less. Back in the 1100s, she was writing about the benefits of beer, including especially um, <laughs> the purification of the water. And so uh, that's a longstanding tradition or maxim that uh, certainly would apply here as well. We didn't take such good care of our waters back in the day. Um. And then another question that um, I, don't, I don't know the story behind this. So if, uh, it'll be interesting to see what you guys have to say. Um, the closing of beer halls in St. Louis causing Germans to start getting involved on the Union side of the Civil War. Either of you know anything about that? I don't. <laughs> what, well, that gets into a really big topic, probably. I mean... <laughs> To some degree, uh, beer halls were also representative of, you know, that was a time period of nativism, I mean, of anti-immigrant um, 
which is probably more influential to some degree in, in terms of the closing of beer halls because it was controvert, you know, that was representative of that culture. And then I think the other thing is, is the, the sense of oppression that they had felt in Germany where you didn't have freedoms, you know, you were, you were under the thumb of whomever was the ruler of the, um, of the limitations that your, your political life could have there. And many had been parts of student protests or had been part of the revolutions of 1848, uh, seeking, seeking constitutional reform in Germany. So that, that would be, in, in my view, more what drove uh, the, the union sentiment and support, which was vital to uh, actually Missouri staying uh, in the union mm -hmm. and to the anti-slavery um, viewpoints of, of most, uh, most Germans. Mm -hmm. um, yes, the, the beer hall would have been a tangible representation of your Germanness. So right. uh, there were riots, there were there were closing of beer halls and things, and I'm sure all those things get caught up in the same uh, web of of conflict. Mm -hmm. So let's um, let's move on to winemaking. Um, I, I want to make sure that we touch on this topic because I, it was so interesting to me when I found this out. Um, so talk talk to us. Cindy, uh, with your with your background, talking to us about George Hussman um, and Missouri's role in the history of viticulture and winemaking, and then tell us about how our rootstock saved the world of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Missouri saved wine. <laughs> it did, yes. Well, and, and the and the, the story is is a long one. You know, there was always an interest in in wine, particularly among those like you know, the Thomas Jeffersons of the world who, you know, been to France and then they have an appetite for wine. Wine was a part of the German culture, but there was a challenge to produce wine in the United States because the varieties of grape did not do well in our climate. And so it always had to be imported. So the, the ability to produce wine was one that hadn't really ever taken off in the United States. It was still an imported product. Some, some of it up in, in New York and, and in those areas, there were some in Ohio, obviously. Uh, but as the Germans came over, uh, they started winemaking. And interestingly enough, those in Missouri were not winemakers in Germany. This is something that they developed here. And that's because uh, they had the, the diligence and the dedication and the, and the stick to to say, well, we don't know that it can't be done. So we're gonna keep working at it until we accomplish it. So what they were able to do was to take the the native grapes, uh, which they saw grew in, in prolific nature here, and they weren't necessarily making a good wine from that, but then they could cross varieties, they could import varieties, and they were able to persevere and create a wine industry where there had previously not been one. And the Midwest was the center of the wine industry until, uh, and Missouri was the center of all of that industry, and Herman became even the biggest center of all of it. Um, as a result. And those Germans were doing it not because they had the background in it, but because they saw an opportunity and they leveraged that and created a, a wine industry that was very, very successful. Um, you know, Stone Winery was huge. I mean, it's. It must be you know, a, a DIY, DIY um, you know, video about this. When you were talking about this, well, I've never done it before, but I can learn this. Uh, <laughs> Um, I was well, thinking, that's, part of the, that's part of the importance of Hussmann because um, he was self-trained horticulturist. I mean, he was, um, many of these individuals that came over were intellectual romantics. They were, they were interested in, in education. And so he had, had uh, studied, he read everything he could get. He was a correspondent 
with uh, viniculturists all over the United States. And part of the issue was those do-it-yourself do it that you're describing, Arthur, uh, could produce wine, but they didn't necessarily know the science behind it, okay? And so we ended up with spoiled wines or less than optimal wines. So we had some that were successful. Maybe it was through trial and error and uh, keen observation skills, and they were winning awards even in competition with European ones. Others were peddling things that were horrible. And so it was, it was um, a situation where Hussman uh, took that on as, as he founded the, the first wine association. Um, he created uh, the Bluffton uh, wine industry. It was a whole effort to create a whole town that was based off of, off of wine. Uh, he ends up the head of pomology at the University of Missouri. He wrote the first books on winemaking. Uh, he created The Great Culturist, which is a publication, the very first one on winemaking. So he becomes the authority on wine. And he came to Hermann at age 12, uh, part of the German Settlement Society. His father built the first or created the first winery uh, vineyards, I should say, um, in Hermann. And Hussmann becomes the recognized expert. And yes, you're exactly correct when the French wine industry was suffering from Fluxoria, which is a root louse that destroys the vineyards in France, um, they couldn't determine what was the cause. And it was the Missouri state entomologist who identified it was the root louse. And it was um, Hussmann, who at that point in time was, um, had a, a, a nursery and was cultivating grapes and he had the rootstock and Missouri shipped millions of rootstock to France. And they grafted the French varieties to the Missouri rootstock that was resistant to the Fluxoria, the little root louse, and yes, saved the wine industry of France. Uh, <laughs> there is a statue in Montpelier, France that commemorates the new world saving the old. Yes. <laughs> I love it. That's one of my favorite German heritage stories. So why is George Hussman not an American cultural hero certainly a Missouri cultural hero. Why is he so little known really outside of <laughs> Deutschheim State Historic Site? Well, I think it, it's, it's, it's one of those things, you, you could say the same thing about Alexander von Humboldt and others who were world, he was world renowned and Hussmann was internationally known in viniculture in his time. But when you have an entire industry shut down, which happened with prohibition, and then it's decades before it, it, it comes back, then it, it is a, a difficult one to, um, to maintain that sort of awareness. And as Linda Walker Stevens, who you, you speak about in, in the publication well, and she is the, probably the most noted uh, Hussman expert uh, in a wealth of information, um, noted, I mean, people in California knew, because she had a vineyard out there, knew about Hussman, because they wanted Hussman's uh, certified grape stock, you know, the things that he recommended because they knew it would be resistant to, to the Fluxoria. And yet in your own home community, very little was known about Hussmann. Now it's more known, things like Herman Farm and Deutschheim and others, uh, the word is getting out to say, this is important. This, this is, um, there is no definitive um, wine book on um, Missouri's wine history. And if so, you know, Hussmann would have a huge chapter. There is a uh, a book on him, though, What Wondrous Life, which is more of a, um, of a soft cover book that's available that can tell people more about Hussman's life. Um, but yes, he's important. He's very important. <laughs> he's not just important. He is 
one of the most incredible human beings that you could ever read about. I mean, the list of achievements that you present is enough for one lifetime, but um, what he experienced um, with his, you know, his mother dying early, his father dying of a tragic accident, he becomes a caretaker, if you will, for his sister. His sister dies, her husband is killed. He takes on guardianship of their children. Um, he author, you know, he authors the Missouri um, amendment to um, abolish slavery. Um, he's, you know, he he gives up a very profitable business during the Civil War in order to fight for the Union <laughs> cause. Referring back to our previous discussion, this is an incredible human being as well yeah. as you know, um, a giant of the wine industry. <laughs> um, you don't have to be German to appreciate this. This is, this is the stuff that, you know, I would read about in biographies when I was a kid. Um, so there's something missing in our Missouri heritage if we don't have George Hussman, you know, right in the middle of it. You're exactly right. He, he was uh, serving in the, um, in the uh, Constitutional Convention that did draft the, uh, the um, ordinance that abolished slavery in the state of Missouri. Um, so he, and he considered that of everything that he had done the proudest moment in his life. Actually, uh, Katie, who's the current uh, site director at Deutschheim, uh, just commented that um, there's a booklet about George Hussman available at Deutschheim. Um, if anybody wants to learn more about him, he really is a fascinating uh, person in our history. Um, so feel free to uh, call Deutschheim at 573-486-0. Um, I'm sure that number is also available with a quick Google search. Um, <laughs> if no one writes that fast. Um, lots of interesting information available at Deutschheim, actually. There is a winery there, Caitlin. And in fact, there's an entire exhibit of What Wondrous Life, which is uh, one that toured the state, has also toured um, around the country. And that exhibit is on display there in the, the house winery. So there's Thank much you. to learn there. Right. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap things up a bit here. Um, we've only got a couple minutes left. And my last question is one that we, we I think touched on with every topic that we, uh, that we discussed. So. Um, I want to thank everybody, especially uh, Cindy and Arthur, for leading our discussion today, and all of you for once again joining us this month. Number five. Um, there's a couple of things I want to mention before we go. Um, please, please, please keep an eye out for that survey. Um, those surveys are not just things that I throw in at a pile in the corner and forget about it. I truly read every single one of them uh, and take your comments to heart. So, um, feel free to leave comments and let us know what you are thinking about the, the series so far. Our next program will be February 11th, same thing, second Thursday at 10 a.m. Um, and that one is going to talk a bit more about, um, about daily life and daily culture in, in uh, cultural heritage in Missouri. So um, sure to be another riveting conversation if I do something myself. Um, I did want to mention real quick before we go, uh, Missouri Humanities has a great four-part series coming up um, called uh, uniting a polarized nation. And I just want to mention it because it's very timely. Um, the, the first uh, is this evening, um, it's an author talk with um, Robert D. Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett. They're authors of the How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. 
um, more information about this four-part series, which I think is going to be a really interesting uh, program for us. Uh, you can find our website, it's super easy, mohumanities.org slash uniting. Um, so feel free to check that out. Uh, there's kind of programs and, and um, interactive things that you can do with that series uh, over the next couple of months uh, and information is also on our Facebook page. So I invite you all to check that out um, as well as the many other great events that we have <laughs> through Missouri Humanities. So um, just wanted to plug that for a fellow uh, Missouri Humanities colleague. And, uh, and again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Cindy, Arthur, any last words? Thank you very much, Caitlin, for hosting this. It's a great topic and it's a very robust topic as you allude to, so much to learn, yes. And that the heritage is not just a thing of the past. You know, uh, we don't wanna just live in the past, but we want the past to live in us. And I think this chapter points out ways that um, it can still do so, hopefully. Well, thanks again, Cindy and Arthur and everyone. It's 11 you're welcome. <laughs> Nicely done, Caitlin. Thank you. And we will see all of you and hopefully more of you uh, next month, February 11th at 10 a.m. for Chapter 6. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.